Well, then I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 8. So John sees and writes, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So two weeks ago, as we finished uh, Revelation chapter 7 in the second cycle of uh, Judgment or a second cycle that we see in the book of Revelation. Um, we saw a couple of things from that chapter. The first, well, the first cycle that we see here in the book of Revelation is Christ in the seven churches. So this is a bit of a recap of the book as a whole. So these cycles that we see in Revelation, uh, the first one, again, as I said, was what we see in Revelation chapters one through three, Christ and the seven churches. The second cycle is the cycle of the seals that we saw in Revelation chapter 4 through 7 and kind of sneaking into chapter 8 a little bit, or Christ in the seven-sealed scroll. And this cycle that we saw here begins with John being brought up into heaven to see the praise of the heavenly host that we see here. In Revelation chapter 4, if you remember, we saw the four living creatures these cherubim giving praise to God for his holiness, that he created all things and he rules over all things. Then we see these 24 elders, these angelic representatives of the people of God. They too fall on their faces, cast their crowns before the throne and give praise to the one who is seated on the throne. And then next we see a scroll then given from God, the one who sits on the throne to Jesus, who appears as both the lion from the tribe of Judah and the lamb that was slain before time. This scroll is given to him. And then we next see, as Jesus begins to break the seals on the scroll, one by one, this starts to unleash God's judgment and tribulation upon the earth. Much of this parallels Jesus' message in the Olivet Discourse that we were looking a little bit in parallel with what we saw in Revelation chapter 6. So as Jesus gives his uh, discourse on the end times in Matthew 24. We were kind of watching and showing how that parallels what you see in Revelation 6 with the six uh, with the seven seals. And then upon the breaking of the sixth seal, we see that this unleashes the day of the Lord and that Christ comes and judgment starts to unfold. Final judgment starts to unfold on the people as they sit there in the, you know, in the earth, in terror over the one who sits upon the throne, in the Lamb. So that takes us through Revelation 6 with the sixth seal. Now you would expect them to go immediately to the seventh seal, but then we saw in Revelation chapter 7 sort of an interlude because we wondered at the end of chapter 6 when the people who are crying out in terror over the, the sixth seal being broken and over the judgment of the Lamb coming upon them, they cry out, who is able to stand in this great and terrible day? Well, we see who is able to stand. It is the sealed of Israel, as we see in chapter 7, these two visions that show God's people from two different perspectives. One of them as the church. You remember the two descriptions? The church what? And the church what? Triumphant. And what was the other one? Militant. militant, right. So you see the church militant in the first eight verses as lined up, sort of like Israel in marching order, the, tw the tribes of Israel. And we, we argue that that's really representative of the full people of God, the 144,000 sealed by God, sealed by Christ with, the, with their name put on their foreheads as they stand there in full array before uh, God. And then we see in the second vision of chapter 7, this great multitude standing before the throne made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation, which no one could number. That's the church militant in heaven, praising God for the salvation that they received at the hand of the Lamb. And we see that this great multitude was brought out of the great tribulation. 
not a seven-year period of tribulation after the rapture and before the pre-millennial return of Christ, but a period of time that stretches uh, what we've been calling the church period. The period of time between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. I, I can't think of another phrase to call it other than the church period. So I'm going to stick with the church period for now. The church age. And then we saw how they too worship the God, worship God and how God comforts them, right? We saw that. How they are there now. The church triumphant is there and God comes there and he wipes every tear from their eye as he comforts them and says, you no longer have to worry. You don't have to feel any more pain, no more suffering. You are now here in joyful, triumphant gathering before God and before the throne. So that is our recap. Now, as we head into these verses here, verses one through five of chapter eight, we're going to see a transition. This is a transition section, if you will, these first five verses of eight that transitions us from the seven seals up to now the seven trumpets. Now, all along, we've been arguing that Revelation chapter four through chapter 20 gives us multiple camera angles okay, of the same period of time, the church age, each with its own particular focus. But as we look at our passage tonight, you might argue, and it could seem, that maybe our dispensational brothers and sisters might have a point where they say that the seal judgments come first, then the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, and these are all consecutive you know, one set of judgments, then another set of judgments, and then a third set of judgments. Because what do we see here? We see the opening of the seventh seal, and then all of a sudden we see angels being given seven trumpets. It almost sounds like they flow one right after the other. Now, we'll talk about this as we get along here. To, to, we'll continue our argument. They, these are not consecutive, but they're still different perspectives of the same period of time. But as we look at this passage tonight, really, I want to look at it in three parts. First, in verse 1, we're going to see this silence in heaven. And then second, in verse 2, we're going to see sort of a prelude to the trumpet judgments. And then verses 3 and five through 5, I'm going to argue that that is actually describing the judgment of the seventh seal. Now, I'm, going to, it's, I'm not dogmatic on that, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, some argue that that's sort of like the beginning of the trumpet judgments. I actually am going to argue that what you see in verses 3 through 5 is the culmination of the seals. So when the seventh seal opens, verses 3 through 5 talk about the judgment that you see coming from that seventh seal. So after all the delay, all the interludes, we finally now come to the opening of the seventh seal in Revelation 8 verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So all that tension, all that buildup, all that anticipation and what happens after the seventh seal is broken? Silence. Silence for half an hour. We're like, what is going to happen? I mean, you're, Now, I imagine if this is sort of like some kind of movie or some kind of book I'm reading and I'm seeing these seals being broken open and this, you know, all this devastation is going on because of all these six seals. And then you get to that seventh one and I hear silence. We're like, what's going on here? Are you trying to pull a fast one on me, God? What's going on here with this silence? I would not have expected silence. I feel kind of let down. <laughs> After seeing all the activity of the first six seals, I would have expected something more than silence. Now, I think, how many people here have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? If Mark Bailey was here, he better raise his hand for this one. Raiders of the Lost Ark, the very first one from 1981. Okay, that movie is now 40 years old. Wow. Anyway, you remember how at the end of that movie, right, they've got the Ark there. They're on that island that the Nazis apparently own in the middle of the South Pacific Sea that no one knows about, that little secret base there. And they're getting ready to open the Ark and... Indy is there with Miriam, and they're tied up to that pole. And, you know, all this preparation. So you've got Belloc there, and he's doing this, all this preparation. And then all of a sudden, they open the ark, and you expect all these things to happen. Also, but what happens when they first open the ark? Silence, right? You just kind of get this humming. Mm -hmm. 
you know, this vibration. And they were like wondering, it's like, what's, what's going on here, right? They were like, did we get a, is this a fake arc or what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, after a little bit of time, all hell breaks loose. But there's that silence. It kind of reminds me of this. Now, what does silence signify? What do you think it means? What do you think John is getting here when he gets this vision of the seal being broken and then all of a sudden you get this short period of silence? What do you think the silence signifies? Okay, standing in awe. Anybody else? Okay, that's that's. I didn't think about that one. That's not a bad one. Anybody else? What do you think? How about calm before the storm. <laughs> calm before the storm. Uh, Dennis Johnson, who writes a commentary on this called "The Triumph of the Lamb," he says, "Silence is creation's expectant response to the Lord's impending arrival in judgment." This silence is the calm before the storm. For God's enemies on earth, it is the silence of dread. But for those who dwell in heaven, it is the silence of eager expectation. Okay, now, if any of you remember your childhood, and if you did anything to upset your parents, and you got this kind of stern look from your mom or your dad, whoever was the disciplinarian in the family, and they didn't say anything to you. They just kind of gave you that look. Were you more fearful of the look or what came after the look? I would, well, okay. My wife is like, I come back what comes out. Sometimes that look can just be fearful enough because you're like, say something, say anything. Or maybe you go to your spouse. Let's do that one instead. And you say, honey, what's wrong? And she looks at you, and I'm saying she because that only men will say this and only women will do this. She looks at you and says, nothing. And then silence. How many here think nothing means nothing? How many here think nothing means everything? Men are not raising their hands. Okay. <laughs> they don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> No, that silence is scary. You're almost like, just punish me and be done with it. This silence is unnerving. So too with the wicked on the earth. Now we see this kind of silence or calm before the storm in several places in the Old Testament. The first one is in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 20. We read, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Again, there's that image, right? The seal is broken, silence. Here we see in a prophetic work of the Old Testament, the Lord is in his temple and he commands, let all the earth keep silence. Or in the book of Zephaniah, which is right after Habakkuk, chapter 1 and verse 7 where we read, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. So again, the day of the Lord, that day of judgment, and before the day of the Lord appears, there is silence. Let all the earth be silent. Be silent before the Lord. And then finally in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And that's kind of what I see going on here as the seven seals being broken. There's a silence as the Lord prepares to be roused from himself, from his holy dwelling, and then visit final, complete, utter judgment upon the earth. This is the dramatic pause in the vision. After the tribulation of the first four seals, after the cry of the martyrs under the altar, we saw in the fifth seal, and after the massive devastation of the approaching impending day of the Lord that we saw in the sixth seal, 
The seventh seal is broken and you get this silence. Now think of just how awesome this would be as if you're John witnessing this vision. You're getting this vision. In fact, think about this too as well. We saw in Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7. What's going on in those, in those chapters, particularly 4 and 5? What are the four living creatures doing before the throne? What's that? Worshiping, right? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What are the 24 elders doing after the four living creatures say their praise? They're doing the same thing, right? They bow down with their faces to the ground, cast their crowns, and they also utter praise. What's the church triumphant doing in Revelation chapter 7 before the throne of God? They're praising too. Okay, you're catching a theme here, right? This praise is day and night, ceaselessly before the throne of God forever and ever. Yet when the seventh seal is broken, that praise chorus is paused for 30 minutes. Okay? Even the praise that continually goes before God, before His throne, comes to a halt as that seventh seal is broken. Now that idea there of half an hour, it just means a short period of time. It's not, again, don't think literally 30 minutes. Just think of a short breath, a short respite before everything starts to happen. So why does everything seemingly grind to a halt at the opening of the seventh seal? Well, with the seventh seal broken, the scroll and its contents are now finally opened. Remember, the scroll had writing on the inside and on the back side, and you couldn't read it until all the seals were broken. Then you can open it and examine its contents. Well, now that that seventh seal is broken, its contents are laid bare for all to see. And consider this as well. We have argued that this scroll contains God's plans and purposes for human history and the salvation of his people. As each seal was being broken on the scroll, those plans were starting to come to fruition. And now with the last seal broken, that's it. It's all open now. And the throne room in heaven takes a break from its 24-7 praise chorus to to anxiously wait to see the fulfillment of God's plans. They're like, oh, wait, let's pause. The the last seal's broken. Let's see what happens. I I can almost imagine that kind of happening there in heaven as well. Or, you know, just finally, let's see how God fulfills his plans. Again, as the prophet Zechariah said, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has aroused himself from his holy dwelling. So now, as we move on to verse 2, the prelude to the trumpet judgments, after this momentary pause in the heavenly throne room, one now might expect to see Jesus, right? The the seventh seal is broken. I would expect Jesus now to come forth after that brief pause. Again, Zechariah says, the Lord has aroused himself from his holy dwelling. I would expect to see Jesus at the breaking of the, the seventh seal in full battle array, ready to execute final judgment like we see at the end of the book when he's coming on his white horse with his sword girded at his side and his, the sword that comes out of his mouth that slays everything. But what do we see in verse 2? Well, let's look at verse 2. Then I saw, so that's, uh, that's language that means a change of visions, right? Or a change of subjects within the vision. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Like I said, that phrase, then I saw, is a typical transition phrase that marks the beginning of a new vision. We saw it in Revelation 4, 1, Revelation 5, verse 1, Revelation 7, verse 1, and verse 9. And I couldn't think of an example of a movie that did this, but I know there are movies that do this. They don't tell the story in a linear fashion, right? You're watching the movie, and then after a scene, the scene goes black, and then you're, you're, you're all of a sudden you're watching a different perspective, a different time frame of the same events. You know, other, I've seen this in TV shows. I've seen this in movies. You know, they're just showing you different perspectives of the same thing. 
But every, after every scene, it goes back to the beginning or it starts with a different character in mind. That's kind of what's going on here. Instead of telling the story in a chronological fashion, the timeline jumps around, and at the end of each scene, there is a fade to black before the next scene, and that's what's happening here. So the seventh seal's open, silence, then John sees these seven angels who stand before God. Now these are different than the four living creatures. These are different than the 24 elders. These are different than the heavenly host that is just there singing praise as well. Who are these angels? Anybody got a guess? Who has a, who, anybody have a guess on who they think these angels are? It's okay to guess because the Bible doesn't specifically say, so your guess is as good as mine. No, no takers, huh? Okay. Um... Well, the last time we saw mention of seven angels before, back in Revelation 1.20, the seven angels, the ones who's, who are the seven, um, trying to draw, I'm drawing a blank, the, 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 you've got the seven, uh, the seven stars and the seven angels who are the seven, uh, the angels of the seven churches. Okay, I don't think it's them. But these seven angels of the seven churches are the, sort of like the guardian spirits or the angelic representatives of these seven churches. I don't think it's them. Uh, some argue that the seven angels are the seven archangels that we see in the Bible and in Jewish apocryphal writing. So these seven archangels. Now, two of these archangels are mentioned in the Bible. The first one, is, well, who knows? Anybody remember the names of the two archangels in the Bible? Okay, I heard Gabriel and I heard Michael. Okay, yeah, those are the two. So interestingly enough, Gabriel, because it says these seven angels are before the throne of God in Luke 1 verse 19, we see this is the uh, angel Gabriel announcing to um, Zechariah the birth of John the Baptist. And Zechariah said to the angel, how should I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And in verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And Gabriel will do the same thing with uh, Mary and Elizabeth. So it says there, Gabriel stands in the presence of God. And here we see these seven angels are the ones who are in the presence of God, who stand before God. Of course, Archangel Michael, you see him in the book of Daniel. He's the angel that sort of protects the people of God. You also see him... Uh, in the book of, we'll see him later in the book of Revelation, uh, as he casts uh, Satan out of out of uh, heaven. But in Jude chapter nine, we also see Michael. Uh, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, "The Lord rebuke you." So here, Michael again contending with the devil, Satan. Uh, we see him there as well. Now the rest, anybody, I'll give bonus points. Points mean nothing, but I'll give you bonus points anyway. Bonus points if you can name any one of the other five archangels. Anybody have a Catholic background? Because if you had a Catholic background, you might know these people. All right, well, I'll give you the names. I, I didn't know them either. But the rest of the archangels are named in an apocryphal book called the Book of First Enoch. This is a Jewish apocryphal book that is not part of the Bible, but it, it has some interesting tidbits of information. But here we see the other um, five archangels. There's Uriel, Raphael, Reguel, Sariel, and Remiel. In case you wanted to know that. <laughs> uh, the El is God. Um, in fact, I was looking up Raphael. Is, that means like God healed or one who is healed by God or God who heals. Um, yeah, they all have something to do with something God in it because the E-L at the end is the, the word for God. The bottom line is we just don't know exactly who these seven angels before the throne of God are. The archangel's argument, eh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I kind of like it. You know, there's a little bit of weight behind it when you consider that Gabriel, one of the 
archangel stands in the presence of God. There might be some weight to that, but who really knows? But the point is that as these seven angels are called before, called from the presence of God, they are each given a trumpet. Now, what is the point of the trumpets? Well, trumpets are often used in the Old Testament as a call to war and or for judgment. Consider these following passages. You can jot these down, if, or if you want to do some sword drills, you can turn with me. Uh, Numbers chapter 10, in verse 9. Here, um, Moses is talking to the people of Israel as they're about to embark on their journey. And in verse 9, says, When you go to war and you're in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and you shall be saved from your enemies. Another one is in Ezekiel 33. In Ezekiel 33, the first six verses, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon the land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, and if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes away any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will, I will require at the watchman's hand. So here Ezekiel is basically talking about the watchmen of Israel and their job, their charge, to be the the people who watch out for, for the people of Israel, the ones in charge of making sure the people of Israel do what is supposed to be done. They're the watchmen. They're the ones on the tower. And if they see bad stuff coming and they don't warn the people, then it's on the watchman's shoulders. It's on his head. If they do sound the trumpet alarm and the people don't listen, then it's on the people's heads for not listening to the trumpet. We see another... Uh, thing of trumpets here, this time more in a reference of judgment in the book of Joel, another Old Testament prophet, Joel, right after Hosea, Hosea, Joel, Amos. And in Joel chapter 1, this is a particularly poignant passage because here it says, The day of the Lord, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, their like has never been seen before, nor will again be again after them through the years of all generations. So here again, that trumpet announcing the day of the Lord. And of course, we also see trumpets when Jesus returns, right? In his Olivet Discourse, when the archangels come to gather God's elect, they will sound a trumpet, which will then gather the elect from all the four corners of the earth. Now, I left out one passage here that also speaks of judgment, or speaks of trumpets in the context of judgment from the Old Testament. Can anyone think of that passage where the people of God blew trumpets? Jericho, Jericho exactly. There is an example of judge of trumpets being used specifically in a context of judgment against the wicked, against God's enemies. The people of Israel were told to march around the city of Jericho for seven days. And then on the seventh day, they were told to march around Jericho seven times and they were to blow trumpets. And then the walls would fall down and then they would be able to go in and slay the inhabitants of Jericho. So again, trumpets used as judgment, to sound the warning of judgment and to call the nation to war. So here the day of the Lord is at hand and these seven angels now are getting ready to blow these trumpets and bring forth the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
Now we're going to look a little more closely at these trumpet judgments in weeks to come. But I want to say one thing here at the outset. These are direct judgments from heaven to earth. Just glance ahead at verses 6 through 13, which will be the next time we get together. We'll look at these. And these outline the first four trumpets. But here we see in in verse 7, the the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and so on and so forth. Again, so all these things being cast down the earth, the the sun, the moon, the stars being darkened so that they give off a third less of their light. Now the seals, if you remember the seal judgments from chapter 6, they were indirect, right? This was indirect judgment of God, right? The, the, the spirit of conquest, the spirit of war, the spirit of famine, and the spirit of death marching through and wreaking their havoc on the world. Uh, sort of like what you see in Romans 1 where the wrath of God is being revealed and God gives people over to their sin. That's what we see mostly in the seal judgments. God giving people over to the depravity of their own sin. But here in the trumpet judgments, God is now directly bringing judgment upon the earth. These things are being cast down from heaven to earth. Now here, this is where I want to consider the timing of the seals and the trumpets and the bulls. I almost feel like doing... Uh, What is that? Uh, Wizard of Oz, right? Seals and trumpets and bowls. Oh, my. Seals and trumpets and bowls. Oh, my. Now, as I said earlier, it might seem on the face of it that the seals are followed directly by the trumpets, which are then followed directly by the bowl judgments. And having just read Revelation 8, verses 1 and 2, you see the seventh seal being opened, followed by seven angels being given seven trumpets. Now, you know that our dispensational brothers and sisters interpret it this way, right? They interpret it one following the other. This is how they follow their sort of literal hermeneutic or their literal way of interpreting the Bible. Well, we see the seals, and then next we see the trumpets, and then finally we see the bulls. So it has to be one, then the other, and then the third. All of it kind of happening in one long line. However, as I've been arguing, what we have here is prophetic recapitulation. I'm going to use that phrase again. Prophetic recapitulation. The idea that these prophecies, these visions, sort of say the same thing from different perspectives over the same event. Sort of like different camera angles. So I think the seven seals present probably the most wide-angle view of this period of time that we're looking at. The period we've been calling, for lack of a better term, the church age. Now the seven trumpets seem to sort of tighten that focus a little bit of this period, perhaps focusing more closely at the end of that. Again, note in verses 6 through 13, that all of this destruction that we see from the trumpet judgments, or will see from the trumpet judgments, is one-third of whatever it is that's being damaged. One-third of the seas, one-third of the sunlight, one-third of this. Then when you get to the bold judgments, each one of those affects the same spheres that the trumpet judgments go. So if you were to line up the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments, they would parallel each other. Except in the trumpet judgments, one-third of everything is being destroyed. In the bowl judgments, it's total destruction. Everything is being destroyed there. Now, having said all that, I think it seems safe to argue that the trumpets and the bowls happen concurrently with the seals. So if the sixth seal is the day of the Lord then the trumpets and the bowls must fit 
chronologically before the sixth seal. The sixth seal opens up. That is the day of the Lord coming. And then the next thing that happens after that is Christ returns. All of these trumpet judgments, all of these bold judgments fit. If you were to plot it out, seals one through five, probably put the bowls and the trumpets in there, kind of looking at the same period. And then the sixth seal, or the sixth and the seventh seal. In fact, I would also make an argument too that the sixth seal, or the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl mark the completion of God's wrath. In fact, it is more likely they cover and depict the same, uh, sorry, different aspects of the same event, namely the second coming. Again, uh, just flip ahead, real, keep your finger here and just flip ahead to Revelation chapter 11. My Bible is just one page over. But in Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15, again, we're skipping ahead a little bit here, but we see the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then in verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. That's the seventh trumpet. Now that seventh trumpet marks the end of the age, marks the return of Christ, marks the completion of God's wrath. Now flip ahead maybe a couple more pages to Revelation 16. Looking at verse 17 in Revelation chapter 16. This is the seventh bowl. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. A lot of ubs there, right? Cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Just out of curiosity, what do you think 100-pound hailstones would do to your corn crop? (laughs) Probably wouldn't fare too well after that, huh? (laughs) That'd be where your insurance comes in, right? Your crop insurance would come in and be like, 100-pound hailstorms came down and destroyed my crop. But again, notice here, the seventh bowl, the seventh uh, trumpet, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquakes, hailstones being cast down from heaven. Now go back to chapter 8. And what do we see in verse 5 of chapter 8? The angel of the God, the angel of God took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All that language is very similar. Seventh seal, seventh bowl, seventh trumpet, all marking the end of the age. So that is why I'm arguing that what we see here. In the bowl, and the, sorry, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments are somewhere in between that fifth and sixth seal. And all the seventh of each one of those is looking at the same event, the end, the final judgment, God's wrath finally being poured out. Remember, again, in the, when the seventh bowl is poured out, you hear the voice saying, it is done. When the seventh trumpet is sounded, you hear a voice saying, the kingdoms of the, of the world are now the kingdoms of our God and of his son, Jesus Christ. 
Now, before we get to the seven trumpets, we see here another angel in verses 3 through 5 who came and stood at the altar. Look at verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now, as I said earlier, what I see what's going to happen here in verses 3 through 5, I said may be a bit controversial, but I think there, there are other people that might agree with me, is that what we see here is what is, is the judgment of the seventh seal. So verses 3 through 5 are, t- are talking about the judgment of the seventh seal not the beginning of the trumpet judgments. Now, I've got two main reasons for saying that. First, notice nothing has happened yet after the breaking of the seventh seal. The seventh seal is broken. The only thing we've seen so far is 30 minutes of silence, a short period of silence. We argue is the calm before the storm as we looked at these other Old Testament passages that show that before the day of the Lord comes, there is silence before judgment comes. And then my second main reason was showing you those parallels that we saw between the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl. How when those things happen, when the seal is broken, when the trumpet is sounded, when the bowl is poured out, you saw rumblings, peals of thunder, lightning, earthquake, stuff coming down from heaven, uh, down to the earth. All these things happen with the seventh, whatever it is, seal, trumpet, bowl. So what we're going to witness here is the result of opening the seventh seal. That is my argument. Now, what is the result of the opening of the seventh seal? Well, we see here that the prayers of the saints are answered. The prayers of the saints are answered. But first, though, we see this angel at this heavenly altar with this golden censer, kind of like a big, wide bowl type of thing. Now, in Old Testament worship, there were two altars, okay? If you remember back in the book of Exodus, God is commanding Moses to make the artifacts for worship. Among the artifacts of worship, he commands the creation of two altars. The first one is the bronze altar that is outside of the holy place in the courtyard. And the bronze altar is what the Jews would then used for their burnt offerings. So they would put all their burnt offerings on this bronze altar. So every bull, every calf, every sheep, every turtle dove that they offered as a burnt offering to God was done on the bronze altar. Anybody remember where the second altar is placed? The golden altar. Not quite the Holy of Holies. In the holy place, not the most holy place. So you think about how the, you know, the closer you get to God, the more precious the metals too, right? Outside, bronze and silver. As you get inside, gold, okay? So inside the holy place where you have the table with the showbread, you have the, the lampstand that burns night and day, and then you have an altar of incense. This is the golden altar that stands before the holy of holies, right before the presence of God. And they were to burn incense on this altar in the morning and in the evening. Aaron was commanded, as you bring in and you do these things and you trim the wicks on the lamps, you you offer incense in the morning. And then when you do it in the evening, you offer incense in the evening. Now, in Revelation, we only see one altar. In uh, chapter 6, verse 9, we see the, the martyrs who are under the altar. And we saw that it's sort of symbolic of that bronze altar that is the sacrifices are offered on. But we see here another altar in verse 3. There's really, it seems like this altar in heaven serves both purposes. Okay? It was where the sacrifices are, and it's also where the incense is offered. Now, it was believed in Old Testament literature that... The incense that was burned on this symbolized the prayers of God's people, the smoke rising up to heaven, the prayers of people ascending up to God. We see this in Psalm 141, verse 2. 
I'll start in verse 1. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call you. So here's the psalmist praying to God. Give ear to my voice when I call you. Verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. So here the prayer is the incense being lifted up to God. The prayers go before God. And we see this also in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, as the um, 24 elders are there. Uh, when he had taken the scroll, that is when Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So here are the angels in the throne room of God carrying these bowls that have the prayers of the saints, and they're in the presence of God with these prayers. Now just take a moment to think about this. It's beautiful imagery, and it's wonderful to read these things, but just think of the practical application here. All of the prayers of all the saints for all time rising up to God as, an, as incense that he, he breathes in our prayers. Think about the martyred saints under the altar in Revelation 6, how they pled for God for vindication. Vindicate us, O Lord. How long before you avenge us? Think of all the imprecatory psalms that you read in the psalms that talk about, Lord, save me from my enemies. Lord, dash them on the rocks. Lord, deal with my enemies. Think of our own prayers for justice and vindication when you feel you've been wronged, when you feel as if somebody has done you wrong and you want to take vengeance, but you realize you can't take vengeance because the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So all you can do is pray for your enemies, right? You just have to sit there and pray for them. And those prayers go up to God. We may never see full justice in this lifetime. But here in verses 3 and 4, this angel here takes this golden censer and he offers much incense with the prayers of all the saints. And as he does so, then the smoke of this offering now rises before God from the hand of the angel. So again, every prayer of every saint comes before God. Don't ever think your prayers are not being heard by God. He hears every prayer. He answers every prayer. Maybe not in the way you want it to be answered. Sometimes that answer may be no. Sometimes that answer is wait. Oftentimes that answer could be yes. But God hears and answers every prayer in a way that is best for us. Maybe not in the way we like it again, but in a way that is best for us. So now then this angel takes this censer that had the prayers of the saints and now fills it with fire from the altar in verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So again, the answer to the prayers of the saints for justice and vengeance and vindication comes now as coals from this fire on the altar are gathered together, and this angel then throws them on the earth. So as the seventh seal is opened and the scroll is finally laid bare, we see God bring the long-awaited justice and vindication that the saints had prayed for throughout all the ages. As we close, I want to say a few words again on the power of prayer. We often pray for things such as healing, right? We pray for recovery, heal so-and-so, pray that so-and-so gets recovered from their surgery. We pray for travel mercies, be with so-and-so as they travel to so, you know, wherever. We pray for provision, Lord, provide us, give us our daily bread. We pray for forgiveness, forgive me my sins, Lord, and for blessings and the like. And these are all good things, and we ought to continually pray these things before God. But if you look at the Lord's Prayer, which we recite every Lord's Day, right, we recite it, there are two petitions there, right, okay, it's the second and third petition. So the first one is, hallowed be your name. What is the second one? Your kingdom come. What's the third one? Your will be done. Okay? 
Prayer is first and foremost a vehicle for God to accomplish his will. God accomplishes his will through prayer. Now you're like, well, why does my prayer matter? He already knows what I'm going to pray. Well, yeah, he does know what you're going to pray for. But you pray for it anyway. And that's how oftentimes God uses that prayer as the means to accomplish his will. And that's why Jesus says, if we pray according to the Father's will, we know we will get what we pray for. Because we've prayed according to God's will. Not according to our will. Not according to what we think is right. Not according to what we want. But according to what God wants in our lives. What God wants in the world. And what we've seen here in Revelation chapter 8 verses 1 through 5 is that God hears our prayers, all of them, and he answers them. And here we see also the fulfillment of the kingdom of God coming in its fullness, right? That seven seals broken and judgment pours out, the wicked are slain, and the righteous are vindicated. The kingdom of God coming in its fullness, your kingdom come. Think about what we pray for when we pray that. I mean, right now, in this age, we're praying for the advancement of the church, right? You pray, your kingdom come, Lord, as the gospel goes forth, as, as dead sinners are made alive in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, as they are brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. The church is growing, just like that parable that Jesus tells of the mustard seed, right? It's teeny tiny small. You plant it in the ground, and it grows into a large, luscious plant, whose branches are able to support the birds of the air. We pray for that church to come. But this is, the church is, again, the church militant right now. When Jesus comes, we will become the church triumphant, and God's kingdom will come in its fullness. And more so than ever, we need to continue to be praying for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done in our lives. May we continue to seek his will and his word. May we continue to pray to know his will. May we continue to act according to what we've read and and gleaned from his word. May we continue to be people of the word that is being sanctified by your truth. Your word is truth. We've got that right up there behind the pulpit. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth, Lord. Thy word is truth.